turning that into a blossoming film career is a much more constructive way of handling that than another Austrian man who had his dreams of painting ruined that I can think of. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to an episode of Cinenation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cinenation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. And on today's episode, we conclude our month-long discussion on film noir with our director episode on Austrian director Fritz Lang. But first, Thomas, we've talked a lot about film noir this month. Can you give us a brief recap about what film noir is and what is kind of part of it? Yeah, so as we've discussed, film noir is kind of a mixture of a genre and a style. Um, most people might recognize it from the visual style of kind of dark alleyways, very um, high contrast lighting. Uh, a lot of seedy cities and back alleys. Um, it's a lot of times it's it's uh, uh, thought of as the detective noir genre, but there's also spy noirs. There's crime noirs. Uh, it just kind of covers a lot of um, the, these ideas of transgressions, like some kind of crime has been committed uh, either by the main character or against the main character. And it's really about taking a look at kind of the darker side of society and the darker side of humanity. So then you've also got going along with that. You've got, as we've talked about a lot, the um, female character tropes within the genre. This is where femme fatales really come from. This idea of a, of a woman who's out to kind of ruin someone. Um, fairly problematic, but uh, yeah. very uh, heavily tied into this genre as well. And then you've also got uh, these and and Lang is going to show these a lot. These um, kind of the opposite of femme fatale, but a, a woman who's kind of got a darker past, but who's looking yeah. for redemption on the femme fatale. Because femme fatales also to like usually are like sexual in nature. They use their like. There's a great. Uh, there's a YouTube uh, channel called The Take. Uh, I think it's these two female YouTubers who kind of like give the female perspective of certain movies and movie tropes. And they did, I think last year, one on the femme fatale kind of diving into the whole, like, is it misogynistic or is it like empowering? And the, the kind of like say, well, it's kind of both. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, not to go too deep into it, but it, at yeah, a yeah. time when female characters weren't fully fleshed out. Yeah it was a step forward as far as actually kind of looking into the motivation, you know, they, they, they did, they became more than an accessory within these films. And I mean, for the, for the late 1930s, early 1940s, that was a big step um, yeah. was to t take a deeper look into what motivated these women and um, you know, their wants and needs and that sort of thing. So even, even if the, it's problematic that, that sex was, uh, related to kind of violence and being deceitful and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, it was a step forward and a step back, I guess. But, um, but yeah, the the more fully flushed female characters was definitely an advance that that these characters did offer. Yeah. Also, too, with film noir, we kind of talked. Yeah, you said like the visual style of German expressionism. Also, kind of a plot device of MacGuffin, which I think mm -hmm. we're going to talk a little bit about today. So yeah. So with Fritz Lang, I know deciding on this month's director. I think was a little difficult because film noir is such a, again, we talked about how it's a genre and a style. And I've also found out a lot just this month of like watching a lot of noir of just what, what falls under the umbrella of noir. It's, it's very like, it's not as clear cut as like, Oh, this is a, a rom-com. This is a heist film. 
noir is very much almost like a feeling you're trying to capture and like you talked about these kind of transgressions or these these crimes that happen like sometimes it's i'll talk about a few films today where like one like a couple of of lang's films are just dealing with like an affair and how just a simple uh, not simple but like a like a, a a marital affair can classify as noir mm-hmm. but yeah so deciding on the director was difficult because there's a lot of directors that kind of fit in this category uh i think we briefly discussed billy wilder at one point and a few of the directors who came over from germany or austria but lang seemed like the most influential of the genre because i think he's one of those rare directors that was in hollywood that had the perfect mix of like german expressionism and american ideals and we'll talk about that a little bit later too yeah yeah but i mean when you're also discussing a lot of these american directors who kind of adopted german expressionism for the film noir whereas he was uh he was a german expressionist yeah yeah exactly <laughs> who, who brought it who brought it over and, and because he started so early in like he started in germany we'll talk about this when we get into like kind of early beginnings but he, he started in germany like in the 19 late 1910s making movies and was just kind of aware like hey we it can't just be like set up the camera and shoot some funny gags or like plot scenarios we gotta like make this like a painting Mm -hmm. um and so he wanted to push the boundaries on that before we started prepping for this episode thomas what did you know about fritz lang yeah i mean you know in any kind of film history study you're gonna study lang because metropolis especially is such a influential early silent feature it's one of the first like uh big sci-fi yeah uh feature productions um anyone who's not familiar with metropolis it's that very iconic imagery of like a um female android uh big you know black and white silent film but this uh full human robot suit um so very famous for that imagery and, and very famous for being one of the early like narrative features really pushing the limits of what was what kind of stories were being told within narrative um and then leading into m which has always been a movie that's fascinating to me i um was terrified of peter laurie when i was a kid because <laughs> of the looney tunes character that was based on him yeah <laughs> just just because there was one looney tunes cartoon that there was a very there was a peter laurie character in, and it scared me so bad um so i've always been fascinated by peter laurie i and so m was was one that i sought out uh fairly early in my film career when i finally was you know like embracing your fears i was like i'm gonna watch all these peter laurie movies (laughs) um yeah and it's wild i mean it's an extremely dark and mature film it's about a a child murderer who may or may not be a a, you know child molester as well uh being chased down by an angry mob uh so you know a theme we'd see him explore later on but um yeah. But yeah i i that was the primarily my experience with him was his german films and then knowing that that he brought his style over to america and especially you know as as far as film noir goes i i've seen the big heat multiple times i know it's one of the kind of most influential yeah. of the film noir um works uh other than that i don't know that i'd seen any other of his his movies other than big heat i don't think i'd ever watched any of his other american films yeah i had i had seen human desire i think a year ago which i think came out in 1954 give or take a year but that that was part of criterion did a their like film noir collection like right when criterion channel launched 
mm-hmm. uh, and Human Desire was one of those. But yeah, I I saw M when I was in college, the University of Alabama. That was like well, they they did like a, a one week on German. The it was a it was like an intro to film criticism, but like it, they did like one week on German film of the 1930s and m was the movie that was shown i've got to i've got to make a make a film student confession a, a 19 year old film student confession i was in i was in an undergrad italian cinema class and um on the day that we were supposed to like introduce ourselves our professor made us go around and instead of saying what our favorite movie was she made us say what our favorite foreign film was uh-huh. and um and i mean we're all like 19 year old college students so most of them were like kurosawa movies i feel like and i was like you know what i'm gonna stand out i'm gonna say that my favorite foreign film is m and so i said it and she just goes like your favorite movie is about a a child murderer (laughs) (laughs) and i was like i don't know you're like i just thought it was the good thing to say yeah but see what's weird it's 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 funny how like nowadays like i mean this is not funny but like how crime has become an upset not obsession but a uh, a a, pl- a guilty pleasure or just a i mean i guess it's obsession with like with like people who listen to podcasts and like just like mm-hmm. true crime stories like m feels like a perfect movie for people who like that st- likes that stuff i don't know mm-hmm. and people who are morbidly obsessed with with peter laurie yeah exactly it's 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 a uh, fun get the- you don't hear you don't hear a very quick very brief <laughs> true crime true crime peter laurie story i gotta Go think this is one of my favorite stories in the world the hillside stranglers who were serial killers who uh who murdered people in los angeles uh they once were posing as police officers to pick women up and they would um like tell them they were being arrested for something put them in the back of their car drive them somewhere and and murder them sorry guys if you weren't here for true crime uh, (laughs) just very briefly um they picked up a woman once and and were searching her belongings and found a picture of her with peter laurie in her wallet and and they both loved Peter Laurie and they said, Where'd you get this picture with Peter Laurie? And she said, That's my dad. And they said, Okay, you're free to go. <laughs> and they let her go. And she's she testified when they were eventually caught, she testified at the trial because she was one of the only people to like survive yeah. a run in with the two of them. But uh They're just like, Yeah, they they're pretty nice guys. <laughs> they're just they just they love, love Peter Laurie. They love pre- Peter Laurie, big fans of the man who knew too much, the original. Mm-hmm. Um but but yeah, and speaking of that, actually, uh, I'm a, I'm a uh, transition here because uh, here's kind of my thesis. And I texted you about this earlier when talking about the man who too much directed by Hitchcock. And when going through Fritz Lang stuff for this episode, I began to notice a lot of themes and similarities between Fritz Lang and Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, and I, I independently noticed that as well, <laughs> which is kind of wild. You texted me and you were like, "I have a take on Fritz Lang." I was like, "Is it Hitchcock related?" You were like, yeah. "Yes." Because my my thing was what I was saying I was like Fritz Lang is like the B side of Alfred Hitchcock, and I might even venture to say they had reverse careers in a way, because Lang started off with these large scale movies or what were known in Germany and what he called them as super films because they were these monumental mm-hmm. films like Metropolis, like uh, Doctor Mambusi or how you pronounce it, the Gambler, that is huge two hundred seventy one minute silent film. Uh, or spies and then when he came to america he he began making like more intimate or smaller stories and specifically in the 50s and i feel like hitchcock did the opposite when he came to america like his bigger films were later in his career with like vertigo and north by northwest when lane went lang was making these small films like the big heat and clash by night and human desire and 
this is I don't know if this has anything to do with it, but I wondered if it was because Hitchcock was shooting all of his films in color during this era and Lang was doing all black and white films. Hmm. Like in his entire career, Lang only made six films that were shot in color. When Hitchcock released eight films in the 1950s alone that were shot in color, all being like his big, like Vertigo, North by Northwest, Rear Window. And I just wonder if that made Hitchcock accessible to like younger people later on who are now like Hitchcock fans. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I do think, I think by also kind of playing into the noir, the noir genre, I think he kind of sidelined laying kind of sidelined himself a little bit too because noir is not it's not it's weird it's not like a cult genre but it Mm -hmm. is it's it's kind of a b-movie genre i mean it's like pulp pulp novels you know that you don't sell them on the front rack at the at the bookstore you have a separate section for for the pulp uh that's just kind of the reputation that noir has always had uh you know turner classic movies has their noir alley that they show in the middle of the night it's it's not a midnight movie kind of genre but it is outside of the norm even if these movies sell well it's always going to be noir whereas even though hitchcock has this kind of horror reputation he's still making these huge crowd-pleasing blockbusters that feel more uh more targeted even though you know they're they're talking about the same themes which is what i noticed um especially you know it's hitchcock was always obsessed with like the innocent man accused because he Mm -hmm. was terrified of, of police officers and it definitely feels like Lang has some anti-police sentiment as well. Yes. But Lang, so many of Lang's films that I just watched are about either an innocent man accused or a man kind of roped into crime against his will. Yeah. Uh, which is which is all very Hitchcockian as well. Yeah, it's just it's something that and, and I'm going to there's going to be a few more like cases to say that Hitchcock took stuff from Lang. And I'm going to bring up in the early beginnings. And I'm not saying Hitchcock copied Lang. I'm not going to go like, oh, but I do feel like the the like the family tree is that you go Lang and then you go Hitchcock. And it's yeah, almost but I like. Mean, are they not also kind of working in this? I mean, very similar careers as far as time timing goes, right? Yes, I will. Yeah. Hitchcock or Lang has six years on Hitchcock. But yeah, OK. But they, they both started kind of smaller foreign well i guess lang started bigger but you know foreign silent films yeah yeah yeah. and then coming to the hollywood studio system and kind of warping the studio system to their own visions and lang came and lang came about four years before hitchcock did to america so it's Hmm. like it's always like hitchcock's like four years or so behind lang uh but it's also weird too when you look at like and we'll talk about this a little bit like when they're doing I didn't realize how many spy films that Lang did uh, or like wartime spy films. And it's when you look at the like Hitchcock's career and Lang's career, though their spy era in the 1940s is happening at the exact same time. Hmm. Well, they're also kind of trading cast around. Exactly. You know, yes. he, um, uh, I guess Lang did two movies with Sylvia Sidney and then Hitchcock three. Did, did three. Okay. But then Hitchcock did, uh, did sabotage at some point kind of mm-hmm. during that run yes and then you know peter laurie starts out in germany with him and then comes over and does man who knew too little i mean man mm-hmm. who knew too much not <laughs> man who knew too little i would love to see peter laurie and man who knew too little oh um, man but yeah, it's interesting but we'll, we'll we'll continue to talk about that as we bring up some of the themes of fritz lang i'm gonna jump into his early beginnings for you and see if that paints a picture of 
or helps paint a picture of the films he would later make. Frederick Christian Anton Lang was born on December 5th, 1890 in Vienna, Austria to Anton Lang and Pauline Paula Lang, formerly Schlesinger. His father Anton is labeled as an architect, according to some accounts, while others state he was probably a construction worker of some kind or construction man uh, uh, manager who carried out the plans of an architect, but like he kind of led people to believe that he was an architect throughout his life is what it sounds like. Mm. Paula Lang, however, was from a semi-wealthy family, possibly who were involved in real estate. Before she got married, she worked in a retail shop that her father owned. She also lived in an apartment in a, uh, an apartment building that her father also owned. Once her father retired, she inherited the building and she was the one listed as the owner while her husband was listed as the manager. Anton Lang was raised Catholic, but Paula was Jewish. Uh, due to the rise of anti-Semitism in Austria at the time, Paula converted to Catholicism before Fritz Lang was born and was a practicing Catholic for the rest of her life. Uh, Anton would later claim to be atheist. Fritz would be raised as a Catholic, but would later claim to be agnostic or atheist. But he did later say in life, the study of religion is important for teaching ethics. He was also, I think he had one brother who he kind of disowned is what it sounds like. He's like, oh, he doesn't exist. I don't talk to him anymore. So he never mentioned his his brother as he got older. Uh, around 14 years old, 1904, Lang saw his first film ever. It was Edward S. Porter's The Great Train Robbery. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Uh, after finishing school, Lang briefly attended the Technical University of Vienna in 1909, where he studied civil engineering and eventually switched to art before dropping out. During this time, Lang was still living at home, but at night he worked at two cabarets in Vienna, leading a double life that his parents were unaware of. Uh, he created posters for these cabarets and, and occasionally took the stage as well for like impromptu performances and like poetry. Weirdly reminds me a little bit of Bob Fosse's like background yeah. yeah that's what i was just thinking when you said that and like he also he had a very active sex life at a young age so i was like this sounds like fossey um in 1910 he left vienna and allegedly traveled the world some it's, it's laying uh it's i guess it's the thing and one of the articles i have talking about the man who shot liberty valance says like what's the the western line if like if this if the truth or the the legend's better than the the true story print the legend or whatever it is mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of the thing is that Lang kind of controlled his narrative. And so it's kind of, they're not sure how much is true and how much is not. Um, but during this, these travel years, he visited gal- galleries and museums and cities like Nuremberg and Munich before settling in Brussels for a time. He claimed that during this time, he joined a Belgian circus. In 1913, he moved to Paris to be a painter. And during this time, he said he sold cartoons and sketches to newspapers to stay afloat, even though there is reports that he had money coming in from his parents uh, at the time. He would always say that he viewed Paris as his second home for the rest of his life. He would roam Paris, visiting places like the Louvre, and he frequented the Moulin Rouge dance hall a lot. And he also attended many film screenings in Paris, mainly of French films. That's such a college student studying abroad line. I just really consider Paris my second home now. (laughs) Fritz Lang is a student abroad. (laughs) Okay, wow, yeah. While in France, the threats of a world war, war, the threats of a world war occurred. He said he was at a bar when Jean Juris, a socialist leader in France, was assassinated by a militant right-wing anti-Semitic faction. Uh, When someone ran in and yelled the news, Lang said that everyone turned pale 
realizing war was on the horizon for France. The next day, when hearing that railroad connections to Germany and Austria were being canceled because of, because of bridges being blown up, Lang was told to flee Paris as quickly as possible as any way, for any, by any way he could. He was able to find a train to Brussels with a connection to Germany and was able to get back to Austria to see his family. While fleeing Paris, his dream of painting, is what he kind of says, died off, and he began thinking about filmmaking as a career. Lang would return home and enlist in the Austrian army on January 12, 1915. It's a weird kind of story here. Lang's quick sketch ability that he used during his days in Paris came in handy during the war. Um, he was also a fantastic horseman. According to military records, Lang, during one account, Lang placed himself alone 650 yards in front of his own outpost under enemy fire, and he was able to return to his, his outpost with a sketch of the Russian fortifications that had not been previously surveyed by anyone. Uh, this enabled Austrians to effectively bombard the Russian lines and destroy a massive enemy machine gun that was they were using to to hit the Austrians with. You know, I, I, I do have to say you're talking about his his dreams of painting being ruined. Um, turning that into a, a blossoming film career is a much more constructive way <laughs> of handling that than another Austrian man who had his dreams of painting ruined <laughs> that I can that I can think can of. Think of yeah. What do you do? Uh, you know, let's just you can either like, you know try and take over the world, or you can make some pretty good movies. <laughs> yep. Uh, and during the war, Lang was wounded three or four times, according to records. One of his injuries affected his eye, which resulted in him wearing his famous monocle that he was known for. Lang would later say the war had shown him life stripped to its rawest, hunger and desperation and death, scenes that neither fiction nor the screen can ever picture. While recovering in the hospital during one of his injuries, Lang began writing ideas for films. One of the films he wrote was made by an Austrian director by the name of Joe May. After getting out of the war, I think he might be still in the war, uh, but he attended a screening of the first script that he that he ever that he wrote that was being produced by May to find out that he had not received any screenwriting credit on the final film, even though it was shot completely as written. Oh damn! After this, Lang decided to become a director himself. At this point. Film was in its infancy, and Lang decided, believed that film was going to evolve. And using kind of his painter instincts, Lang saw the lens. He, he believed the lens must act as a tool, using light and shadow effects to to fuse performance, plot, and background to to a unified uh, entity to somehow create a film composition. Uh, I just realized that I didn't say the book that I'm taking a lot of this from, The Nature of the Beast. By Patrick McGilligan is using a lot, a lot of this info that I'm kind of talking about. Uh, it's a great, very dense book on Fritz Lang. I don't know if you need anything else after this if you read this book. Um, but yeah, he's talking about how he believed that he could push the the, the medium forward. Um, Lang was hired and mentored by Eric Pomer. That's probably not the correct pronunciation because it's German. Um, who was a rising German film producer at the time. He would later become a major figure uh, in German film producing films by F.W. Murnau, uh, Robert Veen, Joseph von Sternberg, uh, and the directorial debut and a few later films of a British director by the name of Alfred Hitchcock. No. Lang was always considered Palmer to be one of his most important figures in his life because he was the first one to give him a chance to be a filmmaker. Even as a writer during his early days of filmmaking, a Fritz Lang film could be counted on to weave together pulp cliches with story components that aim for a higher meaning. This blend of lowbrow trappings and lofty truths 
along with a certain visual intensity, atmosphere, and rhythm create a unique combination. Lang insisted on technical innovation on this film, setting out to attack the accepted limits of lighting, camera movement, and technological engineering. He would move it to Berlin in 1918, where he witnessed the end of World War I, the collapse of the German monarchy, and a decade of rampant unemployment, crime, political turmoil, and black marketing. He said it was like sleepwalking consciously through history. Feels like where we're at right now in the world. Um, and then last thing, too, before moving on to those movies, brief personal thing, because I think it weirdly comes into play with a lot of his films and it makes me reevaluate some of his films after reading this in 1919 he married his first wife lisa rosenthal but there is very little record of her uh not long after lang would meet famed author thea von harbo again apologies uh they'd become lovers while both were married to someone else and she had become his most trusted collaborator during his german years co-writing the majority of his films i believe metropolis and m being two of them uh, Rosenthal was aware of their affair, sometimes being seen out in public with both of them. Uh, but in late 1920, oh. something happened that the, to the trio that is still very unclear. Uh, one day, Lisa Rosenthal walked in to find Thea and Fritz together having sex in their apartment. Or it's kind of, it's never said outright, but like Fritz would later confirm they were they were doing some heavy petting when his wife walked in. Uh, to find them. The next part is kind of cloudy, but the official story is that Lisa went upstairs and shot herself in distress, killing herself. Oh, wow. The rumors around the German film industry, however, were that was that Lang killed his wife after she became upset with the affair. Some of the big reasons why it became a true crime again. Um, some of the big reasons why are because Lang and Von Harbo waited a little too long before calling the police about the apparent suicide. Also, after it all went down, Lang's producer, Eric Pomer, uh, uh, allegedly made the incident disappear. Afterwards, the Berlin police expunged the incident from their official records, and Lang never mentioned his first wife in public interviews ever, except only in private and very rarely. Okay. Uh, and suic yeah, suicide and murder became a theme that ran throughout many of his films, even before this happened. Uh, so I don't want to say this is the big effect of it, but it became, this, it feels like kind of a, a big part of his life from the first film to the last guilt, complicity, false accusation, irredeemable crime and inadvertent killings and suicide haunt many of Lang's works. Mm. There you go. That's, that's the brief. And then he starts making movies in Germany. Uh, and so the ones we will talk about these briefly, cause it, it we're, they don't really fit into noir. M kind of does. M feels like like a grandfather to the noir genre. Yeah, um, yeah, I think so. It's kind of the the dark side of humanity for sure, and, and yeah. kind of these dark urban alley settings. Yeah, yeah, I think it's definitely got some ties to it, more so than Metropolis for sure. Yeah, Metropolis is a big influence on like <clears throat> the modern sci-fi or sci-fi fantasy film. Like, if you don't have Metropolis, you don't have Star Wars, you don't have uh, Star Trek, you don't have really any of that properly. It really mm. pushed the boundaries of what genre, what the what the sci-fi genre could be. And also Lang, early on, and we'll continue to discuss this, was very influential in starting a lot of genres or being kind of the first one to really do them. Um, one of his early silent films called Spies is, I think, considered by me one of the early the earliest spy films. And M is 
kind of considered the first serial killer movie in a way. Mm-hmm. So, and and M2 is one of the, comes out in 1931. It's one of the, some people credit as one of the films that really use sound as a tool. Like beforehand, mm. it was like sound was used as like a musical number or use dialogue just to like to where you don't have to use title cards. But M is a film that really uses sound design as a way to be a part of the storytelling process. M's a, pretty much a masterpiece. And Metropolis is, is a, I think, arguably one of the most influential films could come from the the silent era you know when i was uh when i was studying abroad in paris i saw the uh the, the robot from metropolis they have it in the in the film museum there is that like your second home is paris like your second yeah home? yeah it really was i really felt at home there at the paris museum of film which is very small it's a very small little museum it's got like three rooms in it but it was great it was, it was actually very cool it's a cool museum is it bigger than the arkansas film museum that you went to that one it time? is bigger than the arkansas <laughs> film museum and they actually have some real stuff i don't know how I, I guess because the french are so obsessed with hitchcock they've got um oh yeah uh they've got mrs bates's head there um oh man they've also got a lot i mean it's a lot of melier's stuff which was oh, which was very cool yeah yeah but the Fr- the French do love Fritz Lang that like because yeah. Truffaut and Godard were kind of the two to the again out of the Caillou uh, Cinema movement and those critics that became filmmakers uh, in the in the forties and the fifties they were huge fans of Fritz Lang yeah yeah but they had the they had the full uh, the full Metropolis robot they also had the uh, the straight razor from uh, Buñuel from Andalusian oh, dog the, okay uh, slices yeah, yeah, the cuts, eyeball cuts the eye. Well, well, I need to go to Paris and it could be my second home. Well, it'll be a few years. <laughs> it'll be a few years before it happens. Um, so he does all these silent films. He does M. And as he's doing this, Hitler is beginning to come to power and Nazi regime is become, starting to come to power. Fritz Lang was Hitler's favorite filmmaker, which is kind of funny because I feel like many of his movies were anti like politics and political people or stuff like that. I think and, yeah, and also anti. Uh, I, I mean, I don't really know how to put it, but I mean, even in M, you know, he's he's obviously a, a bad person, but there's still this kind of voice that's saying like this angry mob is like is dangerous, like no matter yes. who you're going yeah. after. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he was definitely anti. I don't know exactly what the word would be, but like a mob sentiment or like mob yeah. mentality. Yeah, that, that anti-mob sort of thing. All these mentality. Kind of, yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, the idea of I mean may at this but like uh guilty until proven innocent type thing is kind of that mm. that r- it runs through a lot of his movies um but yeah so hitler really liked lang uh and according to lang uh the propaganda minister uh for not the nazis joseph gobelis gobels again I'm, i need to learn german for some of these names uh and i apologize uh called lang to his office to inform him that even though his latest film was going to be banned uh, they still loved his movies, and especially Metropolis, and they offered Lang the position of the head of the German film studio UFA, uh, essentially believing that he would be kind of controlling the propaganda of the Nazis. Uh, Lang said it was during this meeting that he decided to leave Par- leave for Paris. He later claimed that he, he sold his wife's jewelry, which allowed him to buy a ticket to Paris to leave, leaving most of his money and personal possessions behind. But he left Berlin for good in 1933, and divorced his wife, Thea von Harbo, who at that point was becoming very, uh, began, began to believe in the Nazi party is what it was. Oof. 
And so he was like, I got to get out of here. I'm going to go to Paris. He made one movie in Paris called uh, Liliome, starring Charles Boyer. It was Lang's only film in France before he moved to America. So that's why he fled to America was because of the Nazi regime. And that leads us to his first American film, which we both watched for this, uh, called Let's Fury. Say, uh, also, another another weird tie be- between the rest of Noir Vimper was um, Charles Boyer was uh, John Huston's pick for Edward G. Robinson's character yeah. in, uh, in Key Largo. There's a lot of weird connections when looking at Fritz Lang uh, with some of the movies we talked about, being as Edward G. Robinson pops up a couple times in some of his movies. Um, mm. So yeah, Lang comes to, to Hollywood, signs the MGM studio, and makes his first American film called Fury. So Thomas, what is Fury about? Yeah, so Fury stars uh, Spencer Tracy um, and uh, Sylvia Sidney, who he made several movies with. Uh, Spencer Tracy, who he never made another movie with, and I heard uh, refused to work with Lang after this experience. That makes sense. Um, he, he feels a little uncomfortable in this movie. Like, you can kind of yeah. read it. Uh, yeah, did not like the way Lang worked at all. But uh, anyway, yeah, Spencer Tracy is just this really nice, like, good guy. He's, like, super morally right. Um, yeah. Just a great dude. Uh, but he's on a road trip to go meet up with his fiance and get married. And he gets framed for a kidnapping just because he likes peanuts and he carries peanuts with him. Yeah. And the kidnapper also was known to be eating peanuts. Uh, and so he's put in the, in the town jail for this little town and rumor spreads fast that he's guilty and like the rumors of his crime grow more and more. And so an angry mob, pretty much the whole town comes together in an angry mob and ends up burning down the jailhouse to, to get to him, uh, because they want to, they want to kill him and he survives, but nobody knows that he survives and decides to have his brother's without telling his fiance he's still alive, have his brothers uh, mount a court case against the entire town for murdering him. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, it's dark. I mean, it's, it's a, and he, it's, it becomes a revenge tale of him wanting to like see these people burn literally Mm -hmm. figuratively. Yeah. He's like, they're, He's like they're they're guilty of murder. I'm still alive. They didn't murder me. But in the heart, they won- in their heart, yeah. they wanted to murder me. Is what it was. Yeah, exactly. By pure chance, I survived. But like by yeah, in my eyes, they are all guilty of murder. Yeah, it's uh, I said it's you start to see in this movie like especially in the when they're burning down the the courthouse, you start to see that German expressionism come out like these mm-hmm. those clo- those like Dutch angled close ups with like. Uh, like like really like shadowy images of like the the uh, the townspeople looking up at the burning jail cell or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's and it's coming out in 1936, which is about four years from the official like noir kind of beginning. But it's very apparent in this movie. In the in the like we talked about comparing him to Hitchcock, you have this whole wrong man trope that pops up in this movie with with Spencer Tracy. Uh, yeah, yeah, just kind of the. And he and Hitchcock are both great at capturing it, but just kind of the nightmare of being in this situation where no matter what you say, you can't help yourself. And, yeah. and sometimes even like what you say make, digs you even deeper into a hole. Exactly. So apparently, I don't know if you've read this about Fury. Uh, he wanted Spencer Tracy's character to be, to be a black actor. Oh, wow. Uh, but the studio said no. I mean, it definitely felt you could you could feel that kind of energy, especially yeah, 
um you know as much as it tied into like a lynch mob in the middle of nowhere america that that definitely felt like something that would be targeted more at a black man at that period and that's what he wanted to do they're just like we can't do that and so it became spencer tracy i almost burned my side off i could smell myself burn oh it's awful i feel like thanking god or something did you get did you get burned bad? Yeah, but that don't hurt me because you can't hurt a dead man and I'm dead. Everybody knows that. The whole country knows it. Yeah, I'm dead, see? Do you remember me preaching to you to be decent and to live right? Live right. <laughs> I tried it. I tried to like it. And people. But they won't let you. Charlie, you were right. Donnelly was right. Everybody was right but me. I was wrong. But I know now and I'll get them. Sure, we'll get a lawyer and have him. What? Arrested? For disturbing the peace? Or for setting fire to a jail, maybe? Oh, no, that's not enough for me. I'm burned to death by a mob of animals. I'm legally dead and they're legally murderers. That I'm alive is not their fault. But I know them. I know a lot of them. And they'll hang for it. According to the law which says if you kill somebody, you gotta be killed yourself. But I'll give them the chance they didn't give me. They'll get a legal trial in a legal courtroom. They'll have a legal judge and a legal defense. They'll get a legal sentence and a legal death. So when he came over to America with Lang, and I want to kind of, because this is going to be very uh, big, especially uh, it starts off with this movie. He became very obsessed with like American culture and specifically like studying, like uh, like loved kind of like American cowboy songs is what he said. I think he did a road trip around America, like talking to people and going to these like certain parts of the country to figure, like to find out what America was all about. And so he became obsessed throughout his career of like kind of tackling american institutions in some way if if it be through like the u.s court system or with clo or we'll talk about labor like with cloak and dagger there's the there's the opening speech is very very like relevant even for today or later on beyond a reasonable doubt the whole thing is about is did the death penalty the right thing to do which is a conversation mm-hmm. still being had today and this was being had in the 1950s in his movie uh beyond a reasonable doubt but yeah he was very obsessed like kind of tackling these institutions and the american ideals that's why i think he was kind of the perfect balance of of german expressionism and um, american ideals because he was like one to capture he, i was actively trying to capture both of them mm-hmm. um he does fury and then he does you only live once stars henry fonda and sylvia sydney and what is you only live once about not you only live twice, but you only live once. <laughs> uh, you only live once is about a couple, um, a married couple. Henry Fonda, she she works for the DA, and Henry Fonda is is in prison for being a getaway driver for a gang of bank robbers, and he's released on parole, and they get married, but he's just having a really hard time kind of adjusting to life back in no one no one will give a job to an ex con. And eventually he's framed for a bank robbery. Yeah. Uh, which is played kind of ambiguously. Like, we're not sure that he didn't do it or not at, at first. Um, but he he insists that he's framed and she kind of encourages him. She's like, if you're innocent, just he, he wants to go on the run. And she's like, if you're innocent, just face up to the yeah. justice system and you'll be fine. Uh, and so he's sentenced to death. <laughs> yeah and uh put on death row and um uh eventually escapes but in his even though he's been pardoned that night uh he escapes and in his escape kills uh, a man and so she even though he was clear to the bank robber he's now a murderer and she and him go on the run uh essentially i mean it becomes the 
kind of the first like Bonnie and Clyde type story. Yeah. It, it's the original couple on the run movie, basically. Because mm-hmm. Bonnie and Clyde, let's see, they had just died three years before this movie came out, is what it was, I believe. Yeah, three years before this movie came out. So it was very like of the time. And and I think Lang was trying to capture these like what was happening in America at that point. I want to talk about that the 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 bank robbery scene. Cause that scene kind of floored me for the time period. Cause it's basically mm-hmm. the you see you see the image of the of this eye peering through the back of this car in this rainy city. Uh and he throws like tear gas. And it just mm-hmm. feels weirdly modern if that makes sense like it doesn't feel like a 1930s film it feels like an action film of the 80s or something something i noticed for sure is all of his action sequences feel very modern and they're all breathless he had me on the edge of my seat the the mob scene in fury that that scene and also also the prison escape scene in um and you only live once he's got a great eye for all of it kind of the, the shooting it and the edit and the way the sound works. I loved in the scene with only, you only live once in the prison break scene, the way there's this fog going on. So like nobody, yeah. everybody's listening for what's happening. People are all yelling at each other. And uh, yeah, every, every action scene he did in all of these movies had me like on the edge of my seat. It, yeah. um, very, just kind of breathless the way he, he shoots these. And the, and the thing is like this just happened. This is like 1936, 1937, and it just feels very ahead of its time, mm-hmm. uh, and not films that are really discussed nowadays. That's the other thing that like it's yeah. it's it's weird seeing it because I'm like, why hasn't anyone like brought some? Like, everyone like brings up certain filmmakers of that era, but very rarely do we talk about like everyone talks about Hitchcock's set pieces, but mm-hmm. very rarely do we talk about Fritz Lang's set pieces. Also, too, I wanted to bring up around this point. I, I don't know if Henry Fonda was a huge star yet. He was really young in this movie. Yeah, he's very young. And what I know is what I read is that Lang didn't really like using stars or like really known faces. He liked using like kind of character actors or lesser known people. And he does. I, I feel like the only big star comes a little bit later is like with Cloak and Dagger with Gary Cooper. I feel mm. like every other person he works with in this career, mostly like we're not a level people i think after because even spencer tracy i don't think was that big at this point in the 1930s again again kind of comparing him to hitchcock is it feels like hitchcock always wanted to work with the biggest stars at the time mm-hmm. with if it's ingrid bergman and carrie grant notorious or if it's jimmy stewart or or janet lee he's always looking for like the big people when lang was kind of the opposite fritz lang weird sneakily has like a good track record of getting big actors before they get big mm-hmm. fury with spencer trace you only live once with henry fonda uh he did a movie called clash by night with marilyn monroe right before she gets like right when she's getting big but what's this got to do with you it's my hat look at the initials your hat but but how could it be it is that's all somebody stole it when i was in tony's beanery then they planned to take the heat off themselves and put it on me you believe me, Joe, don't you? I do, Eddie, I do. I took a chance on being blasted coming here just to hear you say that. I gotta make a run for it. Give me the keys to your car. But you didn't do it. Give me the keys to your car. I gotta get going. You can't run. There must be some other way. The only way out is to land. You want me to burn for a job I didn't do? 
Aren't you going to help me? But, Eddie, you can't run. You can't. You'll never be able to prove your innocence then. What do you want me to do? Give myself up? Yes. Are you crazy? Don't you see? It's the only sensible thing to do. Anything else will only make you look more guilty. Joe, I'm a three-time loser. They're looking for a goose to cook. I'm it. Do you think anybody's going to believe that I was out walking around the streets looking for a job when those bombs were tossed? Eddie, if you love me, you'll stay here and face it. If I do, it means the chair. You're looking at it all wrong. You're innocent this time. You don't have to run away. Try to make a jury believe that. Try to make anyone. You can prove it if you stay. Run away and you'll never get a chance to. You must believe me. He does that in the 30s, and then we kind of move on to, like, the war years, where he does a number of kind of, like, spy war films. Some people say he invented the, like, entertainment war flick with things like Manhunt and Ministry of Fear. Ministry of Fear is a really good movie uh, starring Ray Milland. I want to bring it real quick. It's Ray Milland gets out of the same asylum because he was put there because the courts classified it as a mercy killing, but he poisoned his wife who was suffering from some disease to help, like, just she was suffering, so he killed her. So he goes to the asylum. He gets out. When he's on his way back to London, he essentially uncovers a secret Nazi spy ring, is what it is. Hmm. And it's him trying to find uh, this information to get to the to, to, to the England and tell them because they believe uh, the Nazis are smuggling in some some English or some some English plans, like like military plans. It's not on Criterion Channel, but it is a Criterion release. But I want to move on to a movie that Thomas and I both saw, and that's called Woman in the Window. And he does he does Woman in the Window and Scarlet Street, which both star Edward G. Robinson, Joan Bennett, and Dan Duryea. And Dan Duryea, we actually talked about last week with Hunter Barcroft on Too Late for Tears. So it's like mm-hmm. There's a lot of different things that are coming to play of like the whole month. Uh, but Woman in the Window is about a professor played by Edward G. Robinson, a, a kind of a loner professor. His wife and kid have gone away for gone away on a vacation or whatever. He's staying in town. When, when are you going to learn? You can't can't go away for the summer. Leave your husband's in New York. It happened <laughs> with Alexander <laughs> Hamilton. It's still happening. So so they go off. He's kind of like hanging out with his buddies at this like uh, this like lounge area, and they're obsessing over this painting in the window of this beautiful woman. And this one night after leaving the lounge, he's kind of sitting, he's kind of staying there and watching, looking at the, the picture, the the painting. And then all of a sudden, he sees a reflection of the actual woman. And he is, they essentially had this like outing together where they go back to her apartment, and all of a sudden a man shows up who is to believe believed to be her other lover and Edward G. Robinson inadvertently killed a man. It's self-defense. It's self-defense, but they then cover it up because, Oh yeah. It was so weird to me. I had watched a movie literally the day before with the exact same premise. So I'm trying to make sure <laughs> I don't confuse the two, uh, but it came out 50 years later. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's like, I was like, cause I was like, Oh, this is a good premise. And then I'm watching one of the window. I was like, I just watched this. Um, but they hide the body. And then what begins to happen is that his buddy who is a, is a newspaper man is what it is. Or he is it a cop. He's, a, he's with the district attorney's office. District attorney's office. Yeah. He begins investigating the, the killing of this man. And Edward G. Robinson essentially is with him when they're investigating it. And so it's, it doesn't make that, that part's a little logical jump. But yeah, it's this like he's trying to cover up this crime that, that he's committed. Yeah, what did you think of it? Because it's it's a this it's movie a trip. is nerve wracking. 
my my adrenaline was pumping this it reminded me so much of the the first episode of um of the night of oh yeah fantastic hbo series but that that first episode you're watching you're like you know this guy's innocent but he's doing everything wrong yeah you're just like dude stop and that's uh i mean even though edward g robinson isn't innocent in this like it is self-defense like they show it and yeah, they, I mean, they don't say it out loud, but you come to understand he fully intended on having an affair that night. So he wants to cover it up. She may or may not be, you know, a, a prostitute. So she kind of wants to cover that up. Um, so neither of them want the cops involved. But but yeah, and then you just watch the evidence happen like that. That's I don't know why that's that's a, a weird sub 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 genre that, that just gets me. It's like watching a crime being committed and just watching the evidence pile up. But uh, yeah, then they've got this sequence where he goes with his friend. His friend's just like, yeah, you want to come see a crime scene? It'll be great. <laughs> and he comes along and everything, every time he opens his mouth, he just incriminates himself like more and more. I'm just like, dude, just walk away. Just just leave. Um, but I, I love the way the structure of this movie is so weird because you spend the first half of the second act with him and watching him be in these like pulse pounding situations. And then it, and then it switches and you spend the second half of the second act with her as she's being blackmailed by a man who who kind of not he didn't witness the murder but he was tailing the the man who was killed and he knows that that something happened inside that apartment and and so then you kind of follow her for the the second half of the second act um and that's also pulse pounding it's yeah. you know she's got this man in her in her apartment trying to blackmail her and she's she's trying to maybe maybe kill him too uh yeah this movie was wild it was crazy yeah she's trying to she's trying to poison him right that's what it mm-hmm. is like she's trying to po- yeah she's yeah. trying to poison him with some some drugs that never g robinson gives her yeah um i don't, I don't want to give too much about the ending away but it's got a wild twist it does uh in the end but yeah very 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 hitchcockian as well like i don't want to say hitchcockian when they're uh, around at the same it's, time it's, but like, it's langian it's langian it's, it's, it's langian it almost it almost feels like a, like a feature length twilight zone episode it just does. the way it's it like does. it's, it's yeah. very much like a moral tale it is yeah, it feels like a waking nightmare like yeah i want to bring up because some of his endings are are interesting and i don't know if they're they fully some work and some don't and i like when, when i come to find out with a lot of his films is that studios always got involved or the rumor is studios got too involved. Dark. Yeah. His original endings were too dark and, like the, and they had to step Apparently in. the F- Fury was just like, hey, we want more of a happy ending here. Let's, uh, so when you watch Fury, there's a shot at, like, there's a like, brief, a few shots at the end of the movie that you can tell are just in front of like a, I'm not, it's not green screen because they didn't have, but they're, they're like shot in front of a backdrop. Like it's not like, mm-hmm. they're not in a courtroom. And it kind of does that with Woman in the Window. I think he did it. He did it with Cloak and Dagger, which we'll talk about briefly after this. I think he even did it with uh, a few other films I'm blanking on. But yeah, and this is something just also like a sign of the time where like the movie's happening and you're like, I only have one minute left. How is this about to end? And then it's just like fade to black and the, the, the couple is like, uh, in a car driving on the coast like oh how about that <laughs> like that's a very yeah, like you yeah. know what i mean like that's very of the time of like oh, what about that adventure we just went on and like wait we didn't mm-hmm. finish it though but yeah woman in the window i know we both yeah you you said it you're like it feels like this is a movie hitchcock like would have done yeah it's just the 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 tension is is so hitchcock and it's just always there and this guy cannot 
this guy cannot stop incriminating himself and he can't get out of like like the when he when he's being invited to go to the crime scene he's like no 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 and his friend's like he'll go he'll go <laughs> he has nothing going on tomorrow <laughs> his family's away like come on let's go do this but yeah Edward G. robinson is really good i think both in this and in scarlet street which is the follow-up film to this with the same cast uh he plays like in comparing to say like key largo which is going to come mm. out two years i think after uh the one in the window uh very different actually uh, key largo is 48 right is that what it is 48 yeah, yeah, yeah so four yeah. years mm. after four years after he does key largo and one of the way he's playing like a like a loner and kind of just like a a, a meek man like he's yeah, very he's, he's a he's a like morals yeah like a ethics professor um yeah. But yeah, yeah, it's definitely a, a change of pace from his like earlier gangster stuff, um, for sure. Uh, he's very, yeah, a very meek man, a very nervous man. And yeah, he nails it. He he plays it very well. And in Scarlet Street, which like I said is the follow up, he plays a a amateur painter who is a cashier at a clothing retailer. And he's been working there for 25 years when he runs in to a young woman by the name of kitty played by joan bennett and she's being attacked and he saves her unaware that the person who's attacking her is her boyfriend played by dan durier uh and essentially they begin someone wants to buy his paintings or something and they begin to use him to sell uh his paintings or whatever it's a very kind of like a blackmail type not black blackmail Mm -hmm. but also like con story in a way but again, deals the painting <laughs> and the same three characters. So it's it's interesting kind of yeah, like double yeah, and feature. She was she was great. Uh, she is in great. Woman in the window. Yes, she is great. They kind of set her up in the beginning to be kind of film fatale. You're like, oh, I don't know yeah. what this woman's at- intentions are. Especially they show her kind of uh, they show her steal an item of his, and you think maybe she's gonna blackmail him. But then she ends up being very very much in the same situation he was in she just wants to to be rid of this and you know did not intend on murdering someone she even like calls him up randomly and he's just like how why are you calling me she's like oh i just saw you in the paper i want to say congratulations yeah <laughs> it was yeah, just she's like, only oh. she's been hiding from the cops for, yeah she's you know, yeah a couple days it's like she does it's it's interesting it's how he plays with that trope of just like oh and she's given opportunities to like essentially leave him mm-hmm and take money and run and she chooses kind of not to it sets her up where she could easily turn and she never really does oh how did you find have you seen the early editions no your pictures in the times congratulations will you tell me what you mean listen Dr. George Felix Reynolds, president of Gotham College, yesterday announced the promotion of Dr. Richard Wanley to head of the Department of Psychology. Oh. Oh, of course. I I wasn't expecting it to fall. Did I frighten you? A bit. Is, uh, everything all right? I suppose so. You've, uh, heard nothing from anybody? Have you? No, not so far. I'm not worrying now. I'm sure we're out of it. Aren't you? I I hope so. And I'm not going to bother you, believe me. 
Oh, it's quite all right. I'm rather glad that I've heard from you. Good night. Thank you. Good night. So that's what he's, he's, he's doing that. He's doing Hangman Also Die, Ministry of Fear, Manhunt, these other kind of, like, those are very World War II movies. And then the end of the war happens, and we kind of go in these kind of post-World War II years, the end of the 40s, and kind of like right at 1950. And he does a movie called Cloak and Dagger, starring Gary Cooper. And like I said, probably the biggest star he worked with in terms of like the person at their peak when they worked together because mm. Cooper, I think two years prior to this, had just come off like three straight award or Academy Award nominations, including one win for Sergeant York. So like he was like at the top of his game. And Cloak and Dagger, especially the beginning, feels almost like a predecessor to Indiana Jones, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Because Gary Cooper plays this nuclear physicist who works this co- he's a college professor, works this college. And what you find out is that he's secretly part of the Manhattan Project. And Mm -hmm. uh, the American government believes that Germany has plans for a nuclear bomb. And they need to verify it and find that information to kind of stop it. And none of their men in their spy ring, uh, the OSS, I guess is what it is, um, Mm -hmm. they they don't know how to, like, they don't know nuclear physics. They don't know nuclear physics. And so they need someone who can go over there and find out. And there's a great speech when it's his Cooper's buddy comes in and asks him to do the job. And Cooper, Mm -hmm. again, very relevant where he's basically saying like two or a year ago or years ago before the war, no one was interested in science or nuclear physics, but now we can make a bomb out of it. Everyone wants to put money into it. And I'm just like, that feels very relevant today. Mm -hmm. It's interesting seeing how this conversation still being had today. Of like, what if we're not spending all this money on like weapons and military and failed military experience uh, uh, experiments and like putting it into science and cures for for uh, diseases or illnesses? And this is the opening of the movie. That's what I thought was so. <laughs> you, I was like, whoa, we're going here early, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's it, but yeah, it feels like a early like just the DNA is there for like Indiana Jones, like a professor who has to go over and is actually this like action star. And like Cooper kind of becomes an action star in the movie, which I just find really cool. Like it's it's very different for Gary Cooper, this movie. Yeah, like you said, Indiana Jones, it's like more adventure than espionage. Yeah. Um, but but still a good mix of both. Very much so. It, it's 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 weirdly I think it's the one I mean I discovered a lot of good films in this like kind of watch, but Cloak and Dagger that or ministry of fear are the two i'm like here's the two you should go watch if you haven't seen like a fritz lang but i like it's like that or big heat this is the first time i was ever sorry i'm a scientist why look in a few years maybe we'll be able to break up the atomic structure of this apple when we do that it will become a bomb. The energy in this one little apple could pulverize this university, this whole town, its fine hospitals, its libraries, its wonderful medical schools, to say nothing of all the people in it. But we still wouldn't be able to make one little apple. We're running ahead of ourselves. 
Society isn't ready for atomic energy. I'm scared stiff. For the first time, thousands of allied scientists are working together to make what? A bomb! But who was willing to finance science before the war to wipe out tuberculosis? And when are we going to be given a billion dollars to wipe out cancer? I tell you, we could do it in one year. But he does cloak and dagger. He get again, the early 50s and before he gets the noir stuff, kind of like Hitchcock, kind of does these like, like, lo- like, I see like lost years where it's like, He's making some small movies. Maybe there's a star in it. Maybe there's no one in it, you know. Um, but still, like, fits within his canon. He does a movie called House by the River, which is about this uh, author who is married, lives this big house by the river, and he makes a sexual advance to one of his ma- to the maid of the house, and he accidentally kills her. Oh, oh. And and then he essentially covers it up by hiding her body in the river. Okay. And then it's kind of a very similar thing with Woman in the Window, where it's like everyone's now trying to figure out what happened to the maid. And you know what happened to the maid, and they're all like trying to find the evidence to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's that's on canopy, I believe. It's good. I think it's it de- there's definitely parts that has the Lang style, but it's very much just kind of like right in the middle of the road for for Fritz Lang movies. He also, we haven't talked about this, but in the 1940s, did two westerns called Western Union, and I think The Return of Frank James that starts Henry Fonda. But then he does the one that I watched for this, it's called Rancho Notorious, which was actually on the Criterion Channel's like Western noir collection for a little bit. Stars Marlena Dietrich, the only time he worked with her. Mm-hmm. Marlena Dietrich runs this like hideout for, for criminals, like outlaws, and this one man essentially seeks out revenge after his fiance is killed by one of these outlaws. So he's tracking down the hideout to go and kill this man who killed his fiance played by Arthur Kennedy. It's really good. It's, it's a solid kind of like Western revenge tale that's worth checking out if you can find it. But then we move to the 1950s. We're going to, I'll mention a few of these, but I want to get right to the big one. 1950s is when Lang heavily, doubles down film noir and that's what Mm -hmm. i want to get at because that's what we're talking about this month and the one i want to spend the most time on is the big heat so thomas what is the big heat about so the big heat stars glenn ford um as a homicide detective and he's investigating a police officer who killed himself and during the investigation his his wife says basically that he was depressed and had like a bad medical diagnosis and so he just decided to kill himself um, but a woman calls Banyan and is like, he didn't kill himself. I, I know it wasn't, you know, I, I know he wasn't sick. I, I don't think he killed himself. Mm-hmm. So Banyan starts kind of pressing, realizing that the widow had lied to him. And after pressing the issue, his car is blown up and his wife is killed. Yeah. And it turns into a much deeper investigation. He's told by his superiors not to not to do it don't look into it and so he turns yeah. in his badge he's off the force and he's going it on turn, his own does, doesn't turn in his gun though by the way he's like oh i bought this nope. with my own money and so then we, we find out it, it's related to uh you know the local mob boss who's who's running a racket of of paying off cops and that's when we kind of introduce our big villain is is lee marvin as kind of the mob bosses who's really uh, damn good in this movie right hand man yeah. yeah and um and his girlfriend, uh, Debbie, who's played by Gloria Graham. 
who uh, kind of the journey of the second half of the movie is that Gloria Graham decides to turn and inform on uh, on the, the mob. And so he's, Banyan's trying to protect her. He's trying to protect his daughter and, and take down Lee Marvin's character. This is like the Fritz Lang movie I see myself rewatching the most. Mm-hmm. And I've rewatched the most. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's. I, I think it is the, the best like detective noir. I think it. Period. Like it just encapsulates. And I think it's, it's interesting that Lang, kind was kind of. I mean, here's the thing. He was an early adopter of the noir style. Like a lot of the stuff that we've watched earlier was noir like you know fury has noir in it woman in the window is definitely a noir film 100 percent uh but it's it's almost like he sat there and watched all these other american directors like try and copy the german style in (laughs) noir in like the late 40s and he was like especially with the big heat he's like all right let me show you how it's done because it this this one is so if if you want to see that kind of German expressionism influence on the noir style, it's all here yeah, with yeah. the the way he plays with light and shadow. Um, it, he really nails it in this movie. Yeah, Glenn Ford. It's Glenn Ford goes from like, but when I first watched this film, the whole and I'm sorry for those that have not seen this movie and we're kind of spoiling it a little bit. But when his wife gets killed in the car bomb, like mm-hmm. floored me. Cause it's mm-hmm. like, it's that point where it's like, it's not that far in the movie, but it's not that early in the movie. If that makes sense. Like, it's yeah, like yeah, 30, we've, we've definitely it's like, been, we've like settled in with his family. Yeah. Like, you know, they're, they're not a lot of times it's presented at the beginning and it's like, oh, okay. You know, we didn't get to know his family that well, but yeah, we, we like know his wife at this point. She is, she's, it's very shocking. Cause you're, it's, mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's as like gently being killed in the, uh, the shower and psycho, that's a little bit later in the movie, but like it's at that point where you're just like, cool, we're going to be following. He, it's going to be this cop who's going to get involved in some stuff and maybe his family's going to be threatened. It's like, no, 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 no. His wife's just going to get killed about 30 minutes in the film. And then the, and then he goes from like kind of a, a, a family man, uh, who's just kind of like t- a tired family man, but like loves his family to like a cold hearted, like dude seeking revenge is what it becomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, as you, I think the cast is phenomenal. Gloria Graham, I think, is coming off her Oscar win for The Bad and the Beautiful uh, a year before this. And she is kind of a... I want to mention her because we haven't talked about her that much this 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 month because she's not in the, any films we talked about. But she is kind of considered to me like one of the noir queens. She was in a mm-hmm. lot of noir films at the time. What's so funny is that, she, for those that don't know who she is, uh, my big movie that i knew her from was it's a wonderful life where she's the, yeah that was, uh, that was my introduction to her for yeah. sure yeah yeah i was just like i thought that's all she did sadly and then i go oh no she did a lot more and had a really good career but it's these noir films a lot of times that don't really get talked about mm-hmm. and the big heat might be her best film overall and how it is being as good well most times a lot of fun expensive fun what do you got against him I don't like thieves. Well, you'll never get anywhere in this town not liking Vince. I'm not trying to get anywhere. That's obvious. Well, that's some improvement. You know, it's funny. Sometimes I feel about Vince, the way you looked at him tonight. He can be a pretty good guy. And then other times he can be... But why kick? 
You gotta take the bad with the good. Is the good good enough? Clothes, travel, expensive excitement, what's wrong with that? Nothing if you don't care where his money comes from. Main thing is to have the money. I've been rich and I've been poor. Believe me, rich is better. Did you think I was an heiress or something before I met Vince? I didn't think about you at all. Thank you. I didn't know you. How could I? Oh, well, that's better. And the big scene that is, is kind of horrifying, even for the standards of today, I feel. But it's, it's when it's her and Lee Marvin. And Lee Marvin throws like a hot pot of coffee onto her. And mm. it's done. It's, it's, it doesn't show her when he does it instead it stays on Lee Marvin, which I think makes it even more horrifying. Cause we have to like, we put, we, we paint the pictures ourselves in that moment of what's actually happening. Yeah. I think that's, that scene is one of those places where the, the confines of the Hayes code are played so well that it's almost better that, yeah. that those confines were there because also with lee marvin's character it's one of those things it's like he's a a, a, a sadist like 100 percent. yeah and and it's you know you they can't say that out outright like this guy gets takes pleasure out of torturing people but um you know there's they they mention a body being found that was like burned all over with cigarette marks yeah um, which he also does later to gloria graham's character but yeah it's he's he's someone who who is not just a killer but he likes to torture people um, exactly. And yeah, and that that scene especially is is by playing it off screen and by having these incredible performances between Gloria Graham and Lee Marvin. Yeah, it's a horrifying scene. Yeah, and and then she plays like the last the last half of the movie in like essentially like bandages. Like it's mm-hmm. it's half her face is bandaged up, um, and she's great. Like I said, I think the script's great. I think it's one of the most like hard boiled movies if that makes sense yeah yeah and and like we were talking about earlier you know lang didn't really lean into the femme fatale as hard as as a lot of these other noir directors were and and this movie especially a lot of the second half of this film is focused on this redemption for this one she was who who was never really a femme fatale you know she was tied up with the with the gang but she she wants to go straight um and I, I even heard one time somebody say that that Banyan in this movie is the is the male fatale because all the women that he meets in this movie end up like killed or harmed. Like it's it's just That's twisting fair. it. And he's he's yeah. he's the one who kind of is is bringing death and destruction to the people around him. I mean, not on purpose, but um, but yeah, I think it's it's interesting that Lang gave us like one of the quintessential noir films, and there's not even that. Uh, you, you know stereotypical femme fatale in it yeah and it, and it's like and he's not even he's not a private investigator he's a former detective basically because he gets kicked off the force for a bit but he's not it's not a private investigator there's no femme fatale there's not really a MacGuffin he's following i mean unless it's saying that you're trying to like say who ki- like what what happened to the guy that died uh also to again it's more langian than in terms of uh, in terms of style and tropes than noir because you again, you have the suicide. The suicide starts the entire plot of the mm-hmm. ran, the 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 guy who kills himself, and that's a big trait of many of Lang's films. Yeah, love this movie. I, there's there's so much. Another thing I want to point out that feels kind of ahead of its time is the relationship between Banyan's character and Debbie. 
Yeah. Like it's not, you know, most of these like big Hollywood movies are like, all right, the guy, our main male star and our main female star are going to fall in love by the end. And they, they form this like really deep bond by the end of it, but it's not, I mean, and, and it's, it's one of those things that it feels like from a storyteller standpoint, you're obviously like this man is distraught over the death of his beloved wife. Yeah. And this woman is just trying to do right by herself. They don't need to fall in love. Yeah. But it feels like the time period when the studio, like surely someone at the studio told Lang at some point, hey. like they need to, they need to be in love by the end of the movie. And it, it just, it doesn't work. And he, he sticks to it. He doesn't make, yeah. you know, doesn't lean into that. And I, I love that part. No, I I think if, if any of the movies, if you've never seen a Lang film, I would say this is probably the one to watch. They might get worse for you if you start here. I'm not sure. Um, but <laughs> I think it's just, I, I started with this one in terms of his American stuff. I started with this one and I haven't been disappointed with anything else he's done really. So yeah, I, I, I think I think it's a good point to start for you. Remember how angry you got when, when I asked you about your wife? I wasn't angry. Well, you and Katie had gotten along fine. What was she like? A real Irish blowtop, but she always got over it fast. She used to raise the roof with me for missing dinner, leaving the bathroom in a mess. And a few minutes later, she'd come in with a drink in her hand for me, just as though nothing had happened. You know, Kate, she was a sampler. She used to take sips of my drink and puffs on my cigarette. And sometimes she used to taste the food off my plate. We got a big kick out of that. I like her. I like her a lot. I want to bring up some other ones that kind of happen at this point, kind of noir stuff, because he worked with some some noir actors. And what I found very interesting, he does this with the blue gardenia with stars Anne Baxter, who was in all about Eve, uh, who plays Eve really good. She's really good in that, this movie, but blue gardenia and human desire, which reunites Glenn Ford and Gloria Graham a year after the big heat. And I don't know how many movies do this in the fifties in terms of noir, or even in gen- general, but it's not about world war. There's not people in world war two. It's about the Korean war, which is like, mm. I, I guess even like a subgenre of, of this, of like Korean war noirs, but in blue gardenia and Baxter's boyfriend is fighting in the Korean war. And uh, she gets a letter from him saying that he's, t- he's leaving her for this nurse he's met. And so now she like has gets drunk one night, goes and meets a man he ends up kind of essentially trying to rape her when she's drunk. She pushes away from hits him with the hits him with a, a a fire poker and she wakes up and he's dead. And that's kind of the plot of the blue gardenia. And then human desire is essentially about Glenn Ford and Gloria Graham. I think plying to kill her husband so they can be together. But Glenn Ford is playing a returning uh, veteran from the Korean war. But I just find Hmm. it really interesting to see Korean war talked about in these films because it's usually world war two. Hmm. It's like people kind of jump from like, it's world war two and then it's the cold war, but we always forget our V or it's world war two and then Vietnam and cold war, but everyone kind of forgets the Korean war period of America. Maybe I'm saying that because my grandfather fought in the Korean war. And maybe that's just like why it's like in my head of why I, re- when I really see it, but yeah. Mm-hmm. One, one, one of them I want to bring up too, clash by night. 
stars Barbara Stanwyck, Robert Ryan, and Marilyn Monroe. They were shooting Clash by Night right when her Playboy spread came out. Oh, wow. Apparently, her her and Lang didn't get along that much. Um, well, it... it, it it was that Mon- Monroe wanted to have a dialogue coach and Lang's like, you will not have a dialogue coach on my set. And then he became <laughs> upset when she didn't know her lines, but apparently she was being like followed a lot by fans after the playboy thing, but clash by night stars, which I thought was very unique. Barbara Stanwyck returns home from after she's been gone for like a decade. And usually that's the male character that's like returning home after so long but she's the female mm-hmm. character who's coming home her father's died her brother lives in the house that that's both theirs um she didn't come home for her father's funeral she marries like the first guy she sees because that's what a wife should be doing she's kind of like giving up on her dreams but when she's marrying him she kind of has this thing with robert ryan who's like a movie projectionist who's this like hard-edged like bittered man uh but mm-hmm. he's married and then once she marries this kind of like safe choice, Robert Ryan gets divorced. And now they're like, oh, well, maybe we should do something like actually have an affair together during this. Wow. I felt as if my own life had stopped. I didn't think I'd ever feel anything again. Where could I go? Home. But you forget, you even begin to hope again. One thing I know. He was a man who didn't tear a woman down. He made her feel confident. Confident? Sure of herself more than she was, not less. The only man I ever knew who gave me that feeling. Which makes me what? A sparrow in a treetop. I never had any complaints. You're crude, Earl. I never claimed to polish. How confident could I make you feel? Last time I looked, you had a wife. Next time you look, maybe I won't. Mm, that's what they all said. May, what do you really think of me? You impress me as a man who needs a new suit of clothes or a new love affair. But he doesn't know which. Beyond a reasonable doubt, this is the last one I want to bring up before we kind of move to the end. I watched this. One of the most far-fetched ideas... I've heard, <laughs> and maybe one of the most like white privileged ideas I've ever heard. If this, so what happens in Beyond a Reasonable Doubt is Dana Andrews plays this like writer. He's dating this girl who becomes engaged to her. Her father is uh, a newspaper man, and the newspaper man is doesn't like death penalty that you, like that you can convict someone of the death penalty based on circumstantial evidence. So they go, what if we do an experiment? where a killing happens and we use someone who's innocent as like the scapegoat does that make is that is that tracking mm-hmm. so yeah they're they're gonna set the, so a, a murder happens there's no clear view of who the murderer is so they set up dana andrews he agrees to it as like an experiment to show you can convict an innocent man of circumstantial evidence so they plant all this evidence of stuff that would happen that he's connected to he gets arrested, and the whole thing is that they're gonna they're gonna put him on trial and convict him of the death penalty. And then the newspaper man's gonna come and be like, "Hey, here's the proof showing that we just set you guys up." It's one of the weirdest ideas, <laughs> and I don't want to spend too much. I'm gonna tell you the I don't, I don't know if you should watch it, but I'm gonna tell you the ending after this is over with because it's a it's a doozy. It's just a weird mm-hmm. twist ending. 
but yeah, so he he leaves Hollywood after these movies. Uh, it it kind of goes back to Germany in a way. Um, he makes his Indian epic, is what's what they kind of call it. Uh, the movie called The Indian Tomb and The Tiger of Ashtonamper. Oh God, I really should have studied some of these words. <laughs> uh, but it's Indian epic where it's a two part movie. He was really big in the two part movies. He did a lot of two part movies in the silent film era. And the in, and this this Indian epic, Indian Tomb specifically, was based on an original idea that he had written in the 1920s but it might have been the movie that he didn't get credit for but yeah so they like let's remake it and he goes over to germany and makes it he also makes a sequel to his uh mambu series mambu dr mambu series uh the thousand eyes of dr mambus um which led to a series of new films that he was not involved in uh, fritz lang would pass away in 1976 at the age of 85 he died of a stroke after he was done, many critics such as like Francois Truffaut or many critics and, and filmmakers praised his work for being kind of the early adopter of the spy movie, the war film, and just basic thrillers. And people who have been inspired by him have been Francois Truffaut, Alfred Hitchcock, Christopher Nolan, Steven Spielberg, Kubrick, uh, Jean-Luc Godard, William Friedkin, so many different directors. Uh, and people have said that, again, he helped launch the Hollywood film noir with you only live you only live once and fury and set the blueprint for the serial killer movie with m my next thing unrealized projects i don't, I don't have a lot of these at the moment but i got three lang was the original choice directing choice for the cabinet of dr caligari i think i had heard that at some point yeah yeah but he turned it down because he was prepping for this his silent silent two-part film i think it was the second part of the film called the spiders uh allegedly he was the one that suggested the famous frame story that is present in the movie, mm-hmm. like the bookends of the man at the, uh, the man, the man speaking, like the, the kind of the conversation story. And people thought, yeah. what are you doing? That's stupid. He goes, no, no, no. It's going to be really German expressionism if we do this. But at that point, it was a fairly new kind of technique that's now used constantly. Yeah, yeah. And, and for anyone not familiar, that the cabinet of Dr. Caligari is probably the most influential German expressionist film. Yeah, of all time. Uh, and heavily influenced the noir genre and also heavily influenced a director known as Tim Burton. Tim Burton. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so after that, Lang was also supposed to direct a sequel to Dr. Caligari in the 1940s. But the project never came to fruition. Uh, another movie he was supposed to do was was called Taj Mahal. Uh, the Indian government invited Lang in the late 50s to make a film in India about the Maharaja who built the Taj Mahal. But allegedly, Lang dropped out because of disagreements during the casting process about the standard of beauty. I don't know if that says that they, the Indian government him just disagreed on what was be- like, like what actresses and actors were beautiful or well, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's the thing, right? The Taj Mahal was supposed to be built as a tribute to that Maharaja's wife. So I guess maybe just like, you know, I'm sure to the Indian government, it was very important who they it cast was. for that. And he was just like, I'm, I'm good. I'm gonna go to Germany and make my Indian epic in Germany instead of India. <laughs> but yeah, that's what he did. Those are the three I found. Maybe I'll find more as I go this, this, big book of fritz lang um so stats what do you want first uh most popular most popular film okay what are the what are the three most popular films uh big heat that is number three uh m 
M is number two. Metropolis. M is or Metropolis number one. So hey, those were the three I'd seen entering into this yeah. uh, into this episode. So according according to Letterbox, Metropolis has been seen by one hundred twelve thousand people. M has been seen by eighty two thousand people, and the Big Heat only twenty thousand. Come on, people, step it up. It's a big drop from M to Big Heat, and then nothing else surpasses. And then the next one after that, Testament of Doctor Mamboose, which is the sequel to Doctor Mamboose the Gambler, only eight point, only eight thousand seven hundred people. Wow, see that's wild. Like especially, especially Woman in the Window watching it the other day, I was like, people should watch. Like pe- more people should talk about this movie. Yeah, exactly. This is so engrossing. So there we go. And and uh, so that's that least popular films. I'll just tell you. Um, yeah. there it's four four around the woman, which is one of his silent films. American Gorilla in the Philippines, which I believe is an American film. Yeah, with Tyrone Power. Only two hundred sixty four people have seen it on Letterbox. Uh, and then The Wandering Image, another one of his silent films. Okay, highest rated. Can you guess his three highest rated films? Uh, Metropolis. Number two, four point. Yeah, at a four point two. M. M is number one with four point three. And the big heat. Not the big heat, actually. Oh no. Uh Die Nibluging. Oh gosh, I should have learned German. Uh Siegfried. Uh-huh. That has a four point one. I believe Big Heat as a four point oh on Letterboxd. Okay. Lowest rate films. Harry Harry Keery, two point six or Harry Keery? Yeah. That's his lowest one. Four around the woman, two point nine. American Gorilla in the Philippines, two point nine. Uh I added an extra extra stat on this one because I, I might try to do this with the director episodes can you guess the average rating of all of lang's films like i added up all the ratings to his films three eight uh you went a little high 3.5 okay almost a 3.6 it's like a 3.54879 so round up 3.6 if you want to but 3.5 definitely which is uh-huh. really strong for a guy mm-hmm. who made 39 movies. I just want to state yeah. that. That is a strong number. He only had three movies in the Letterbox list that were under 3.0. Yeah, and I mean, that's that's what you and I have pretty much been saying in this, is that like a lot of these aren't well known, but as we've been watching them, they've all been pretty impressive. Yeah, at, le- at least some part of it is very impressive. Most appearances. So can you guess what actor or actress has the most I know Sylvia Sidney had at least three. She had she had three. It's not her. Someone had four. Not her. Someone had four. Uh, And they were in a movie you did see. No? No? Okay. Uh, It's not Edward G. Robinson? It's not Edward G. Robinson. He did two. Is it Joan Bennett? Joan Bennett with four. She was in The Woman in the Window, Scarlet Street, Secret Beyond the Door, and manhunt he had a lot he had a lot of threes it was uh let's see george sanders we haven't talked about he was in like three of his movies uh dan durier was in three of his movies henry fonda was in two gloria graham two glenn four was in two it's interesting because he was known as a difficult director and many people hated him and i think he was known for like being a little more difficult on his actresses Mm. but it's it's interesting to see that a lot of people worked with him multiple times. It's funny too, uh, both Sylvia and Sydney and Joan Bennett, who are in, you know, the majority of the ones I watched, um, were both actors that I was more familiar with their work later in life. 
both went on to be fairly successful even in later age. Jo- um, yeah, because Joan Bennett did a. She was in Suspiria, right? Yeah, yeah, she was in Suspiria, and she was on the uh, she was on the Dark Shadows TV show. Oh wow! She was Elizabeth Collins. <laughs> I. I need to watch Dark Shadows. My mother and then yeah, speaking loves of that movie, our show. speaking of our uh, noir German expressionism ties, uh, Sylvia Sidney was in Beetlejuice. Who who is she? Is she oh, she's she's the caseworker. Oh at the, man, yeah. did not realize. I'm not that. your coach. I'm not your. Co- <laughs> I don't think we survived that crash, coach. I didn't know that. Wow, she's in two Tim Burton movies. She's in a Mars Attack as well, apparently. Mm. so yeah but joan bennett joan bennett has a weird like lucille ball look to her if that makes sense her mm. eyes her eyes have are very similar to lucille ball a younger lucille ball length. so let's move on to final questions is lang an auteur 100 visually pretty consistent um th- like theme wise very consistent across multiple genres yeah uh, you know, like to collaborate with, as we just talked about, like to collaborate with kind of the same people. Um, and what's interesting yeah. too, to in terms of like style, why I would say yes too is because he had a lot of different DPs, mm-hmm. but you still have a very consistent look overall. Like yeah. he, he had this, he worked with DPs like sometimes, usually twice. So a lot of great DPs that he kind of like, filtered in and out of his career, but still had that very dark shadowy visual style to it. Next question. What are his running themes? Uh, I mean, definitely these ideas of like innocence, like what, what truly makes a person guilty, like redemption. What, what can you come back from after having gone, you know, how, how, how far can you go? Mm-hmm. on the side of immorality and, and still be redeemable yeah um yeah and, and like we said kind of the anti-mob mentality anti-mob justice uh I'm, I, you know it's interesting he's definitely has he's he's definitely has a lot of opinions as far as the justice system goes and i can't yeah. quite put my finger on what yeah because he, he obviously does not believe in, in in mob justice he also believes the justice system itself is flawed yep like i'm not sure what ultimately he his goal is but um but he obviously has problems with the way justice is is doled out uh in multiple ways mm-hmm. in uh in society um yeah and like we said he's he's got some very interesting female characters he does not he doesn't lean into the film fatale uh in most situations and and i love his collaborations with Sylvia Sidney because she's she's someone who's so bright, yeah, and like optimistic, and then he puts her in these just pitch Darks. black movies. Yeah. <laughs> so your husband, um, so your fiance, uh, yeah, he's gonna he's gonna die, burned in a jail cell, mm-hmm. and you're gonna be distraught from it. Or like, oh, your other boyfriend, he's gonna be uh, sentenced to death for uh, yeah. a for a robbery he didn't commit she's really good in a lot of the film. I mean, again, it's, and he had a lot of good actresses who are kind of like unsung actresses in terms of the era of that. Like they're not discussed. We talk about these films not being discussed. Some of these actresses there in his films, like Joan Bennett, Sylvia Sidney are not really discussed overall. Also suicide is probably a running theme in his films. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Uh, big thing. How does Lang fit into this genre of noir? Yeah. I mean, obviously as we've, as we said, he's, he's a huge influence on it. Um, he, kind of was one of the people responsible for bringing 
the the phys- visual style of it over from Germany. Yeah. Um, he was and and he was these themes that he was obsessed with. I think I, I definitely think him in the 30s making these kinds of movies with that style is hugely influential on what was to come. You know, these ideas of um, crime and, and murder and yeah, I mean, transgression. These All these ideas of transgression and the, and the justice system and all of that mixed with a German expressionist style clearly paved the way for the rest of these American directors to turn that into film noir yeah. with his help. Film noir and pretty much and like said spy films and i mean like if you don't have fritz lang do you have tenant that's the big question that's all i gotta know <laughs> uh, hey, that you, you know you highlighted that bank robbery sequence uh chris nolan definitely i think yeah watch the bank robbery sequence and how many times have we said that chris nolan referenced something in, in the <laughs> bank robbery of dark knight <laughs> I did think I did think Dark Knight when watching it though. We, yeah, there's like yeah, there's a shot of him like pulling out the gas mask. I was yeah. like, boom, that's Dark Knight. That's Dark Knight, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Anything else you want to say about Fritz Lang to the people? Yeah, I just I had a very surprising experience with all this. It's one of those things that I knew I knew him, like I knew he was an iconic director, mm-hmm. but I'd never gone any deeper than the you know academic requirements. Yeah. You know, the the ones that we knew are the absolute, you know, the most influential of his pieces. But yeah, now that I'm having watched it, I'm, I'm shocked that he doesn't have the reputation as someone like Hitchcock, as someone who was artistically influential, but also just a, a popular, you know, he made made very entertaining blockbuster pieces. Yeah, no, I agree. That that was, I think, what was shocking when like looking at say the, the Letterbox list of like popularity of like mm-hmm. he only has two film like two of his films or three films are 20,000 and over when Hitchcock probably has multiple movies. Yeah, yeah, and I I I I, I want to dive more into that. And probably I'll probably do that on my own because knowing that the French I, a lot of the reason that we think of Hitchcock the way that we do is because of the French. Yeah. And it's interesting that the French were also obsessed with Lang maybe because Lang didn't you know open himself up to the french the way that hitchcock, that hitchcock did i mean yeah. honestly there you can't there there's no you can't state how influential the truffaut's book with hitchcock is i mean that, yeah, i true. think that is the reason that hitchcock has endured the way that he has is because of that sitting down with truffaut um maybe if lang had done something like that we, well, he, he would he actually did Oh, okay. He did it with Bogdanovich. Bogdanovich released a book on his interviews with Fritz Lang. Mm. So that does exist. But Bogdanovich, I think, is also an underrated, severely underrated director. There you go. Yeah, I'm looking at it. So Hitchcock has 18 movies, or actually 19 movies. There are 20,000 views on Letterboxd or more compared to Lang's three. Mm. So... Come on, Truffaut. <laughs> you dropped the ball there. I'm not, and, and I, I am one of the most Hitchcock obsessed people you ever meet. I'm not yeah, trying yeah. to invalidate. I don't, I don't think Hitchcock doesn't deserve the, no, yeah, yeah. the views that he got. I just think Lang, you know, could could be somewhere up there um, as well. In the conversation, yeah, very, very enlightening study for this yeah. for this episode. It, it opened my eyes to a lot of things. Very much so. 
Well, guys, that's all we have for you on Fritz Lang and the genre of film noir or traditional film noir. Next month, we're going to be doing a little, I guess, a little out out there type. It's not really a genre. It's more like a setting and a time. We're going to be doing Christmas adjacent movies. So movies that take place on or around Christmas, but aren't exactly considered Christmas movies. Uh, Our first two movies up, uh, we're doing Batman Returns from 1992 and then we're also doing in bruges as the second week of christmas adjacent uh directed by martin mcdonough and starring colin farrell and brennan gleason also means doing our director episode on shane black so be prepared for that so yeah make sure you subscribe to the Cinenation podcast on apple Podcasts, spotify stitcher or wherever you get your podcast and make sure you like us on facebook twitter and instagram and if you haven't given us a review make sure you do that that helps people find us and we just like hearing what you guys have to say that's it for this month thomas as always thank you for coming on talking movies with me yeah man been a blast and thank you all for listening we hope you listen to more episodes soon bye <laughs>